Hi, everybody. The wrist bones connected to the wrist watch. What's up, everybody? My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 116 of my live chat, the Luke Thomas live chat. How are you doing today on this 19th of May, 2022? I am doing... Uh, I've had a shit week, to be honest with you, but I'm doing okay today. I'm glad to be here with you just the same. On the agenda today, I took a quick glance um, at what you guys had put up there for questions. I saw some stuff about Poirier and Colby. I saw some stuff about Usman's injuries. We can get to any of the weekend's fights. Anything you really want to talk about, of course, um, we will get to. A couple of notes, <clears throat> as, as is customary around here. If you guys want to leave a donation, you're certainly under no obligation to do it. I don't expect it. I appreciate it, but I don't expect it. But if you do, um, I will get to your question at the end. We'll do about an hour for free whenever I, I finish this preamble. And then uh, we'll do that. I have activated, because YouTube offered it to me, what's something called Super Thanks, where I guess it would like highlight your comment um, in the comments. Uh, if you do that... I don't know exactly how I'm going to acknowledge it, but I will. I will find a way either in the comments itself or in a subsequent video to acknowledge it. But it is active if you don't want to leave a question or whatever you want to do. So that is there as well. Again, zero obligation. If you just want to watch it and do nothing else, I'm cool with that too. All of it is appreciated. Gratitude from me to you. All right. Without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? Oh, wait. That's not right. Hang on. And we're back. Okay. Subscribe to the channel. Please like the video if you'd be so kind. So the time on deck is, let's see, 3.02. All right. So we'll go for about an hour until about 4.02. And then I will switch over to anything you might have. Oops. Let's do this real quick then. Real quick. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Okay, and then I can reactivate that. Okay, let's see what you got, and I'll turn this little sticker off. Okay, first things first. Hey, Luke, I'm super... Oh, you know what? I said I was going to open with it. Sorry. I'll do this question, and then I'll get to it. All right, here we go. Hey, Luke, I'm super interested in the upcoming Yuri and Glover fight. In most scenarios, I would have guessed that Yuri would win this fight. However, his long gaps of time between his fights previous fight was last May and his last one before that was 10 months prior right so like something like once a year or something like that I wonder if his lack of elite competition experience will show in the fight I still feel like he can win this fight but I think I'm leaning towards Glover and I think Yuri is going to get out grappled big brothered and choked out keep in mind Reyes was able to take Yuri down so Glover can absolutely do it as well I'm super high on Yuri, but it might be a little soon for him what are the thoughts I, I have to tell you of all the things that might hold Yuri Prochka back at this stage, inactivity would be one of them, but I don't know if I would put that like number one on the list. It's not to dismiss the concern in any way, shape, or form, but uh, it's real and it matters. But again, we've we've been over this a few times, right? Dominic Cruz's ring rust doesn't exist. I would disagree. What I would say though is he's on to something, namely ring rust affects most fighters most of the time in those relevant scenarios. Long layoffs, right? Um, it may not affect him. Ring rust may not be a part. The thing that to me would I would pinpoint first is that he leaves a ton of openings. He has this really wide open style, and every style's got positives and every style's got negatives. The positives are that one, he's a great athlete, 
physically strong for the weight class. You know, he's, he can move quickly. He's explosive. Um, and he's got all these weird things he'll put together and the wheel kick into some kind of, you know, all different manner of or attacks that people are unaccustomed to. But the problem is with that, you leave openings. You leave openings for strikes. You leave openings for potential takedowns. You leave openings for clinching opportunities. You just leave yourself uh, offensively vulnerable. The way he's able to get around it is because he's able to create that magic ongoing. He does get hit a fair bit. Let me pull up his numbers here just to be very sure about that. I want to read his numbers here. Um, but he's wild, and he's rec- he's a little bit reckless. Now, that's all part of his style that he's built. He's got a great record, obviously, 28-3-1. And, and he's got the wins over Uzdemir and then Reyes. Um, let's see. Strikes absorbed per minute, 6.80. Folks, that is off the charts high. Now, granted, he still has a positive differential. Strikes landed per minute, 7.12 striking accuracy, which is actually about what he what most fighters are. About 52%. Most are around 50. Um, takedown accuracy, he's got 100% to the extent that he's gone for it. Takedown defense, 50%. See, it's that takedown defense, 50% that has me. Listen, if the fight goes long enough, it's not that Glover couldn't win that way. But I would be a little bit worried because I don't think Glover's durability is what it once was. It once was very, very good. It's still not bad by any stretch, but it's definitely, you know, at 42, 43, whatever he is. It's compromised. Um, and so while he could win behind the jab and he does have good boxing and he does have pretty good head movement, like Glover can, Glover will punch your lights out on the feet if you let him. I would be worried about him getting cracked with something on the feet the longer that went on. It would just seem to me like Yuri is way too quick. He will take risks, but those risks have high rewards, right? However, it's the ground where he might find trouble. And in fact, the reason why that's even more relevant is because Glover has noticeably tipped the balance of his game a little bit more towards that as he's gotten older, right? Like the, the For example, you look at the Anthony Smith fight, you know, it wasn't that he couldn't necessarily win on the feet, especially as Anthony Smith slowed, but that was, that was trying to ski uphill, you know, but when he took it to the ground, and by the way, you know, Anthony Smith is very good on the ground, um, Glover was really able to shine. He has a super underrated ground game. It's conventional, but it's so strong in its conventionality. And um, I think that would be my biggest my biggest area of concern for him. So the layoff will matter, um, but unless he's really tightened up some of the things that allow him to get hit 6.8 times per minute... Um, oh, and again, it's not just that you would be absorbing a ton of strikes from Glover if I'm talking about the takedowns, but if you're getting hit that much, it means you're leaving these kinds of positional openings that sometimes a strike could be there, but another time a level change or, you know, reaching out for a arm drag or, or any kind of underhook or anything, it just leaves you open and vulnerable. Your stance could be square. You could be looking the wrong way. It just creates a lot of opportunities for him. And by the way, Glover is devastating with ground and pound. Glover can finish from the back. Glover's a handful on the ground. So to me, it's like, as long as that fight stays on the feet, it's competitive, but I would definitely favor Pohachka. But if if Glover is able to get the takedown and keep it for you know a reasonable amount of time, whatever that means, two minutes, something in that ballpark, uh, that's a tough, that's going to be a tough fight for, for Pohachka to win. So I take the layoff seriously, but um, not as the defining factor. I want to talk about this Michael Chandler quote because this thing really 
I keep saying it blows my mind, but it doesn't blow my mind. Now, let me be clear about this. Like, three of the biggest defenders of fighter pay within the UFC are probably like Sam Alvey, at this point, Michael Chandler. Maybe you could throw in there uh, Matt Schnell. There's some other ones as well. Um, I don't know Sam Alvey, so leave him out. But I've interacted with Matt Schnell a bunch of times. Michael Chandler, I've covered his career from the early days of Bellator. I like both of them. I don't, they're not, they are in no way, shape, or form uh, dumb guys, not at all. They're nice guys. They're family guys. They're hardworking guys. Like, they're very likable people. But on this particular issue, I would disagree strongly with them. But I did want to make a point because I wanted to read you. If you guys didn't see it, I guess he was on Jeremy Piven's podcast. I'm really not sure. But, um, he said something that I thought was really kind of interesting and was worthy of following up on here. Uh, yeah, there's a few of them that are just a little bit um, surprising. He says, quote, I don't have a problem with the fighter pay argument. People think that we should make a lot more money because the UFC makes a ton of money on their shows. It's not really the argument, but I, he's, he's summarizing it. Well, the UFC has been at it since 1993, but yeah, Zufa hasn't. Dana White has had 10,000 sleepless nights when us fighters are showing up to practice, going to bed, laying our head on the pillow, and getting after it and getting paid a decent wage for what they do. Yeah, they do get paid a decent wage, but the decent wage is not the argument. The argument is not if they're looking for decency. The argument is, is are they getting what's theirs, decent or indecent? Um, listen, I don't, I don't think this is a very convincing argument that he makes, personally speaking, but I, I do think it draws upon something like, if you listen to the argument, it sounds a lot like a pep talk they would give themselves or another person in the gym, right? I mean, think about it for a second. Like, what would be the conditions, the the mental conditions, and like, the, what beliefs would you have to have to be a high level prize fighter? Certainly, not, you know, they're going to be different. Nate Diaz probably does not have the same train of thought that Michael Chandler does. Um, or even Conor McGregor, relative to Francis Ngannou, relative to Curtis Blades, relative to Brandon Moreno. Like, it goes in a lot of different directions. But one sort of, a couple of, of undercurrents that I have noticed is that, like, the world is difficult. Um, control what you can control. You can do so much more with a positive attitude than a negative attitude. This is all within your grasp. And I'm not going to... Um, how do I phrase it? I'm not going to look for answers by assassinating others. I'm going to go in there and get the work done myself. Now, uh, by itself, these are not these are not uh, these are admirable things to say in general. I think as as life advice, um, adopting some of those principles or practices will get you further than maybe some other ones would. But they are not in congruence with the reality of um, market dynamics. And they are almost to a degree beside the point. Like folks wonder how can there be Stockholm Syndrome. It's the reason why is because fighters would like to believe that they, like they have so much confidence in themselves, so much belief in themselves, so much assuredness of their mission and their identity and their values that any kind of difficulty through sheer effort and will and belief they can overcome them. How else do you think you can win a UFC title without any of those things? Like you can't, or, or at least it would be very, very difficult to do that. Like the the even the very best prize fighters would believe in those things. They would accept those things, and they would hold them as precepts. But like I've said this before, taking that 
and then trying to flatten the world with it like this is a way for all of life to be conducted is simply unrealistic and frankly almost again when we're speaking about what constitutes what is fair and what's not in terms of wage share it's utterly irrelevant it doesn't it has nothing to do with any of that so if you're wondering why there is a there is like how could UFC fighters when the argument is so clear that there's being money that should go to them that is not. I mean, again, I don't know. I really, I'm very, it's, it's, the argument is not, do they get paid what they're owed? That's not the argument. The argument is what's the best way um, to re, to, what, what, what are the best changes that could be made to better maximize their earning potential and then their earning actuality? The argument is not, gee, is it enough? Of course it's not. It's not even close to being enough. It's not even, no, like that's not the, like whether it's enough being on the table is irrelevant. But I've noticed that like you know the same way they talk about fighter pay is the same way they would talk about their path to the title and like all the things that someone has to do to get there. But your path to the title is not a macroeconomic argument. Your path to the title, those things might get you there. Those kinds of character traits and beliefs and and again they do have iron will like I, I really believe that but most people are not them uh and again what does this have to do with the economics of market uh and wage share like there's nothing is, is irrelevant so i just want to point out like people are like hell how can fighters how can fighters adopt these attitudes quite easily they take the same attitude that they would have towards winning a ufc title and all of the same talk about the journey, all of the same talk about the self-belief, all of the same talk about opportunity, all of the same talk about blah, blah, blah. And they just take it from winning a UFC title or you know having the best career they could in the UFC, and then they just map it onto fighter pay. But that's not the argument about fighter pay. Could you, could you adopt those things and potentially get more? Yes. But that won't really solve the problem. That doesn't work for the vast majority of folks. And again, I'll say it one more time, is utterly irrelevant to the actual argument. Um, but that's how you get there. How do, how do you get a fighter to say like, oh, yes, I'm totally paid well, even in a clear situation where they're absolutely not? Because they assume that that kind of difficulty that they embrace to overcome by virtue of their career advancement by winning fights, that logic and that mindset can be pasted onto all of these other ideas. And uh, I would humbly submit that it doesn't work that way at all. Uh, there are lists, getting back to the questions, there are lists of all-time greats in MMA that have people like St. Pierre, Silva, Jones, Fedor, etc., but who do you see as people who could be added to that list when the career is all said and done? For example, do you see Volk, Usman, Izzy, and some others uh, added to that discussion? Well, it's a little bit crowded at the top right now in terms of like, you know, GOAT conversation or Mount Rushmore conversation. I think the thing you're going to see is MMA it's expands more and actually gets a little bit more difficult to succeed. I think you're going to see a little bit less talk about like who's the great of all, best of all time and more like who are the best of all time in certain weight classes. Right, you almost do that already in 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 boxing, for example. Yes, of course, if someone is truly transcendent, then the conversation happens. Like, where does Floyd Mayweather rank all time? Where does Muhammad Ali rank all time among the best boxers ever? And so, in that case, it'd be independent of weight class. And and again, those names will be added to that conversation too. But I think as a sport gets fuller and the weight classes become more developed and success becomes more of a not programmatic, but 
more defined by a certain set of parameters, in this case, weight class, ascension, and domination, which was true back then, but the sport was so limited that that also just bumped you to the front of the line. I think what you're going to see is like with the case of like, do I think Volk or Izzy in particular is the one I would say is probably probably headed for Mount Rushmore-ish territory. Again, you know, we'll have to see what happens. He could lose his next fight, like who knows. But if he can keep up what he's been doing, um, you know, undefeated in his weight class, I, he might be up there. Uh, Usman would be another one. Volk, we'll see. I think it's still really early for Volk, to be quite honest with you. So there's definitely going to be these, like, moments where they're, oh, like they were definitely the best at middleweight or featherweight or, or welterweight, whatever it was. Getting to that next stage conversation... Um, I think will be a little bit harder to come by than it once was. It's just harder to succeed in MMA than it used to be. And so that makes, yes, it makes the ascension that you see today quite admirable, but it also makes it by definition a little bit less. Now, you could say, well, that, that means we were grading the early guys on a curve that they didn't deserve. That might be true as well, um, but because they're already there, it, you, it, the way it works is that whether it should or it shouldn't, you kind of have to unseat them, and you have to unseat them in an era where it's more like these guys are going to surf a little bit on rep reputations as legends. Like how do you unseat that? Um, you have to do a lot and doing a lot in the modern era is more difficult than it was even in their era. So keep that in mind. Look, given that fighters get one free foul, i.e., or I think you mean EG, well, either way, I poke groin kick. If you were cornering a fighter, would you encourage him or her to take advantage of this unwritten rule or tell them to retaliate in kind if on the receiving end of a fallacy? The retaliation one makes the question of intentional versus not intentional a little bit a little bit muddier. It's already a, a very difficult thing to parse. Like, oh, I, I, how do you know if they meant to kick him in the balls or if you meant to poke him in the eye? Well, if someone gets poked in the eye and they come you know, right out and do a Three Stooges bit, you can then pick up on the intentionality pretty quickly. So retaliation, I don't know. And I don't know that I would ever be in a position to like, hey, you should go cheat. I, I don't know if that's me. But what I would say is there's going to be a lot of fighters and a lot of coaches and a lot of teams. And if you're a person who has to win a fight because your lights are going to get turned off or, you know, whatever, some kind of dire situation. And I know you folks might be thinking like, um, you know, that's a crazy situation. No one ever get their power turned off. Yeah, Google Roland DeLorme. He had his water turned off before like a UFC on Fox event and was begging for a bonus so he could get it turned back on again. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is, as someone in a situation like that, hell, it doesn't even have to be that way. Look at what Tim Elliott did. Is it rational to conclude that you could foul an opponent in a professional high-level mixed martial arts contest in front of the referee once, perhaps even twice, perhaps even more than that, but certainly once or twice, and get away with it. Yes, it is completely rational. They do not enforce. They do not enforce the rules. Jason Herzog would be a clear uh, example doing it the other way. Recently, I forget which fight that was. So, shouts to Jason Herzog. He's a tremendous referee. But the vast majority of them have this ridiculous attitude, in my view. Oh, we don't want to. We don't want to get in the way. Yes, I don't want you to get in the way. If someone is fouling a motherfucker, you are getting in the way by not taking a point. Like, save me all this bullshit about your stern warnings and your ultra stern. It's like you know, I've said this. I made this joke before. It's like fucking condoms. It's like, <laughs> it's like this is the uh, this is the ultra thin condom. This is the ultra thin premium. All these different labels, and we're all just sort of getting to the same fact, dude. 
either take a point or don't. Either take a point or don't. And they typically don't. They typically don't. So if you're a fighter and you want to win by, I don't know if any means necessary, but damn near close to it, why wouldn't you? Oh, I have integrity about not wanting to do that. Great. I understand that completely. I understand it completely. Um, but so what? Uh, a lot of other people are going to see that very differently. Very differently. And what are, the, what are you supposed to tell them? Oh, it's wrong to cheat. Yeah, of course it's wrong to cheat. What the fuck's I got to do with anything? If it's wrong to cheat and yet still entirely rational, and this goes back to the doping argument, you're going to have a hard time eventually dissuading people other than by leaning on their uh, on the honor system. And again, it's not something that I would ever want to do, but I can imagine that people who have a different set of views about this might choose a completely different path. Can we talk about Usman's knees and body and general body? I've heard numerous times about his knees being broken down, thus not being able to do cardio. When on GRE, he said he can't run on concrete due to pain. Yeah, I can't run on concrete either. Granted, I'm a pro athlete and I'm much bigger, but still. Surely this cannot be true as he still maintains his championship level fighting skills. Yeah, it's totally true. Dude, all of these guys are super fucked up. (laughs) I mean, it's not just scar tissue, folks, although that's a big part of it. You see these fighters in person, they've been doing it for 15 years or something. It looks like a, like they look like, I mean, I hate to say this, but in many cases it's true. They look like those pit bulls who get rescued out of Michael Vick's bad news kennels and their face is all like chewed up from stitches like here. And they've got like, you know, you can see all of the dots from the stitches going in all through. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but dude, they've got arthritic fingers. I, this is the point I go back to with, with like hobbyist jujitsu. It's like, I know, I know, I very much know hobbyist jujitsu folks who in like 42, my age, were getting hip replacements. You know, dude, <laughs> this is a violent sport. Even the composite sports of wrestling and jujitsu, if you do them long enough, less violent than MMA, certainly, but the wear and tear is remarkable. Remarkable. All of these guys don't either, they hide it or don't pay attention to it or just they don't really care that much, which is fine. Like, not every injury you have to kind of, you know, lose sleep over at night. But am I, do I believe that Kamaru Usman can't run on concrete due to his knees? 1,000% I believe that's true. 1,000%. That doesn't surprise me even, I'm, frankly, I'm surprised that that's the only issue related to his knees or, or the only thing that he's limited from doing um, in terms of his knees. I, I would imagine, I mean, yeah. Like, you know, a lot of questions about why he doesn't wrestle more. I bet the wear and tear on his knees is extraordinary. Extraordinary. To, we all focus on, like, cuts maybe like broken limbs or um, traumatic brain injury. And those would be, you know, certainly quite important. I, I would not say otherwise. But, dude, arthritic issues, um, mobility issues, believe it or not. Um, you know, cr- uh, oh, my God. I've had a UFC fighter, as a champion, this was years and years ago, you know, talk to me about all the stuff they were doing uh, to deal with all the pain they were in all the time, neck issues. Oh my God, folks, like you can't, I don't give a shit who you are. Yes, Joel Romero is built different than you or me. Okay, fair enough. He's built different than you or me. He is still, he is still human. And you look at his eye, for example, uh, among I'm sure many other issues, all of these guys are battered and broken. And this is, again, we go back to it every time. I sound like a fucking broken record every time I do this live chat. This is why fighter pay 
is such a huge issue. It's not about saying that Dana White doesn't deserve to be rich because he does. It's not about saying the UFC doesn't deserve to be making the money that they make in, in terms of the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, not not net profit, but you know overall revenue that they generate. Fine, generate it. But this is why the equation and the balance of the scales has to be even because these dudes are getting mangled for a living. It is car crash after car crash after car crash after car crash. Whether it be laceration, hip issues, back mobility, knees, and I mean you name it, you name it, you name it. And dude, and the methods they'll go to. Uh, I'll tell you this story. This is a true story. This guy's still active. He may have told the story, in which case, you know, you could put it together. But if not, then I'll keep it private. But there's a UFC fighter who is still active, still high. I think I think he might be top five in his weight class, who was telling me he had a hand issue. This is years ago, but he had a hand issue. And it was going to come to a point where um, two of his fingers, potentially, given the issue, if, you know, given given the severity of the issue... Um, he didn't want to be left with. They, they might there might have been some amputation that was needed, and he his response to the doctor was, "If it makes it easier, and I can keep the knuckle, just take the whole finger." Right? I mean, <laughs> these guys don't talk about a lot of their injuries a lot of the times because they're too tough to notice, they're too tough to care, they're too tough to like share it. These guys are. I mean, you could not believe the amount of injuries that they have. You could not believe it. And the human body is quite resilient, theirs in particular. But, uh, you know, sure, you're a question. Surely this cannot be true as he still maintains his championship-level fighting skills. No, it's definitely true. No, Not a doubt in my mind. Zero. None. When I see hobbyist people, hobbyist people, show up day after day after day, wrapping their bodies like they're Kazushi Sakuraba or they're, you know, some ancient Egyptian uh, king or, you know, Whatever they're the pulling out of the, you know, the, the the mummy that they're pulling out of the sarcophagus or whatever, <laughs> you know, they're they're wrapped up like that just to get through practice, and then they do it for you. You think they'll stop eventually, and then they just don't. They just keep going because they want to get their goals, which we can all respect. But holy shit, dude, these sports are destructive. Cauliflower ear is the least of the injuries you will get. It is the least of them. Uh, Luke, obviously you've transitioned room service diaries into a product that is not going to get you fired. That's true. Two questions. Will RSD replace Wednesdays of MK? I don't think so. And will we ever get UNBC back in a room just answering questions and telling stories perhaps less wasted? Yes. Um, it is not my anticipation that this will replace Wednesday's show, and it is my anticipation that we can get content like that. Also, the episode with Glover is still, I would caution you to view it much more as a work in progress than a, this is what these will look like. Um, so just keep that in mind. We're trying new things. You have to, right? We have to try new things. That's what this is about. Uh, someone asked another question. What made you guys want to rebrand Room Service Diaries the way you and BC did it before was super entertaining? Well, again, the Glover episode is not the best. It was the first one we did. I don't know that that's like uh, forever and ever. I don't know that we'll hold this one up as the way that we want them all to look. I think... There's a look that we're going for and a feel that we're going for that I think will take some time to get into. And so I think that once we do, you'll feel a little bit better about some of the trade-offs. Um, but, you know, room service diaries, I don't think there's anything in there that would get us fired. But there is no denying that if you keep doing that, 
and you know we were expressly warned about this. You keep doing that, there is a very good chance you're going to end up on the street. Uh, and you know, I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> I'm trying not. To. No one said if you keep doing room service diaries, you'll be fired. That's not what I mean. But they were warning us against certain kinds of content that we were heavily trafficking in about what what the limits might be for that kind of a thing. So, um, I don't want to get away from that. I wanna I wanna still do some of it, but I want to do it in a way where um, there's less professional long term cost. I, you know, I hope folks understand that. And again, like, oh, will you and BC just shooting the shit after having Delta Eight? It's like, can we do that again? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. There's a few... Th I mean, listen, here's the thing. We wanted to do an interview series anyway. And so we were tamping down one and we wanted to build up the other one. We were just like, why don't we just call this Room Service Diaries? We'll have this like weird hotel feel to the whole thing. But like the, I think you're talking about of this kind of off-the-cuff conversation about fun. It's not going anywhere. Don't worry. Don't worry. Luke, are well-established MMA fighters financially compensated when they appear in interviews? More specifically, I'm thinking of Dustin Poirier appearing on Ariel's podcast. The two kind of have some bumps in their history, but Poirier co consistently appears on Ariel's podcast. I understand how lesser-known fighters have a lot to gain by appearing in front of such a large audience and wouldn't need any direct financial incentive, but I've always wondered if these bigger names receive any compensation for such appearances. I'm sure it does happen, but no, I, I've known Ariel, Ariel a long time. I don't think that's ever been a thing he's done. Now, there are costs associated with doing it any way you do it. Like if you fly someone to Vegas to go do it or, you know, uh, he did. Remember that? Remember that after John Jones's first attempted comeback before he fucked up everything again? They had Ariel go out there and like, do like a walk and talk with him in Albuquerque and whatnot. I mean, that costs money for him to do that. That doesn't go to John Jones, but I'm saying the company has to spend it one way or the other. Uh, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I would very much doubt that he did that. And also we don't do that. We would, we would, in the case of room service diaries, we would pay for travel. Um, the, the fighter would not have to pay to come see us. Uh, but there would be no like, Hey, here's a thousand bucks on top just to go fuck off with. No, we wouldn't do that. Oh, sorry. I missed one here. Uh, look, the parallels between Tony Ferguson and Tyron Woodley seem quite similar. This person writes. Both had three fights where they lost basically every round, followed by a fourth fight where they came out, gave everything they had, and got brutally finished. It was clear as day that Tyron was done, but is it time for Tony to call it a day now, or do you think there is still something left? The first round against Chandler wasn't vintage Tony, but he looked very good. So maybe he still has something left to give. He did look good. I went back and I watched the fight again. I actually thought he had some good moments. I think he was really, um, he was doing a good job of, picking apart Chandler with some positioning issues, but also some shot selection issues, leaving his head open, and he was able to pop him in the in-between. Good timing, good identification of targets. Like, it was good. Like, there was there was a lot to like there. Um, and then he came out, he got finished with that weird front kick that was almost like he was kicking a soccer ball, but then curled his toes up to still get it underneath the chin. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see. I don't get quite... I got real... I mean, here's the thing, like, Tony got real, okay, so a couple things, Tyron just kind of got old, you know, like, going into the Usman fight, I think I had thought that he was going to look better than he did, he just looked kind of lifeless, and then you know, there was a series of fights after that where he just looked kind of lifeless, 
and then in the Colby fight, he got you know kind of injured at the end there, and then and then he had the Luke fight where he, to your point, he came out guns blazing. Tony is in a bit of a different situation. He had a fight where he got brutally, brutally beat. Right again, you know, you're just not going to be the same after that. It's not po- It's just not possible. It's not, I don't give a fuck who you are. It's not possible. Um, but you know, then he, ha- you know, he was fighting real tough guys after that, like Dariush and, and like Oliveira, and Oliveira was stretching him out, but he didn't give up in that fight. And this is the first time he's ever been put out. So like, there are some similarities to their trajectories. But I said this before about Tony, and I'll say it again. He definitely needs to take time off, although that doesn't work for him either because he's already 38. You're going to come back when you're 39. Like, you know, the time is not on your side at 155 pounds. It's a little bit better at 170, but even then, that's old. For 39 is old for fighting, period. It's super old for uh, 155 and 170. Uh, again, I think he's only 38 right now and just turned 38, but let's see how much time he takes off. I don't know. So the point I'm trying to make here is their circumstances are not identical. Like Tyron just was a much Tyron, I think, had a peak as an athlete before he had a peak as a um, celebrity fighter. So like I think the very end of his peak athletic abilities was right as he got the title, and like maybe a little bit after that. And then he just you know everyone's going to age out differently. It's it's going every, everyone's going to have it. Everyone's going to suffer it if they stick around long enough. That's the way that it goes. Part of that is what happened to Tony. Part of that is also the Justin Gaethje beating. But, like, you're right about the Michael Chandler thing. Like, here's the thing about what happened with Tyron. Tyron came out in the Luke fight and was almost, like, hard-charging to the point of reckless. And that's partly why he got finished. Tony wasn't. Like, Tony was real strategic against Chandler in that first round. So, my, my thought is, like, okay, again, this idea that Tony's just going to go back to being the same guy pre-Justin Gaethje that he was after it, and again, all the other losses now, now the Chandler KO. Like, that guy's not coming through the door again. That that doesn't exist. However, like, do I think he can still win in the UFC against, like, you know, respectable or potentially credible opposition? Like, yeah, I kind of do, actually. I don't, I don't, I don't know that the door is closed to that. Um, Whereas with Tyron, he just wasn't throwing. Like, go back and look at Tony. Did Tony look like he was gun-shy to you in that first round against Chandler? Didn't look that way to me. Now, again, he just got viciously KO'd, so we'll see what happens on the comeback. But I didn't see I didn't see that at all. I saw quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. So I understand what you're talking about with the parallels. The age is a big one. The string of defeats is a big one. Like, we have to wake up to the reality about where people are in their career when you see things like this. At the same time, there are some meaningful differences, and what they tell you about the differences between them is kind of important. Luke, do you think the UFC is trying to prevent another Conor McGregor to maintain control, or do they think they would welcome another Conor type? I'm sure they would love to have another person as powerful as McGregor, but they don't need another McGregor to make a bunch of money. They can have a bunch of people who are no more popular than, like, don't get me wrong, UFC middleweight champion uh, Israel Adesanya is super popular. He's not Conor McGregor popular. They'd be just as they'd be happy if that's all they ever had. The way in which their business is constructed, they don't need anything bigger than that. Now, again, if you had it, that's, dude, it's great. I mean, it's amazing. So I don't know that they're putting in roadblocks to try and prevent that kind of a thing. Plus, on some level, they can't. And again, also, like, which is it? The UFC is out to get Conor McGregor or the UFC played an active role in his ascension by promoting him in certain ways, giving him certain platforms, world tours, fights that were advantageous early in his career before his wrestling had come around, like against Dennis Seaver. Right, like people are like, oh, he fought, 
Dennis Seaver, that was the right next fight. Mm -hmm. They could have given him a tougher fight than that. They were waiting to see him develop by the time he got to the, you know, very end of the of the the very top of the division, then there's nowhere else to go. Then you have to fight whoever's just basically up there by and large. So yeah, you're either wrestling is ready at that point or it's not. So like, do they actively, you know, they, they let him box Mayweather? Like, dude, they actively did all of the things that again, he he did the rest of it, and you could argue certainly the majority of it, but they helped get to this. Like, you know, has he created some headaches for them by virtue of, you know, throwing shit at buses and everything else he's done? Yeah, of course. Um and I don't think they want the headache of dealing with someone who's got as much leverage as he does. But, dude, he doesn't have how much leverage. Like, dude, if he went away tomorrow and never came back, would the UFC still print money next year? Yeah. Like, why, like why wouldn't they? Unless consumer demand just fell off a cliff because connor has gone, which connor has been gone for all this time. Has consumer demand fallen off a cliff? Habib is gone now, too. Did consumer demand fall off a cliff? Like, you know, is it good to have a Conor McGregor based on the way that the UFC's business model is constructed? Yes, of course. Is it in any way necessary based on the way their business model is constructed? Not even close. Ten years ago, I couldn't say that. Ten years ago, it, was, it would be a much different scenario. Very, very different. It was the way there was volatility. And then before that, like it's say pre-2010. So if like UFC 100 backwards, right? That was that, that, that you're asking like what the what the tough explosion was. I forget exactly what number it was. Let's say roughly UFC 50 ish. I think a little bit after that, maybe closer to UFC 60 to UFC 100. That's like, let me see. Actually, hold on. What would be the tough boom? So let's see here. So Rich Franklin fought Ken Shamrock at the Ultimate Fighter One finale. Yeah, UFC 51 was the one before that which was Ortiz Belfort. So then you had this other one. So UFC 52, which was April 16th, 2005. I remember this very, very vividly. Um, not the year. Oh, that was when Sabral beat Travis View. Yeah. Travis View went on to be like a like a weird old um, journeyman after that. Like like true journeyman. Like, hey, it's a weekend in Iowa. I'm going to go armbar some stiff out here. And then, oh, it's another weekend in Arizona. Like what was his record? What's Travis View's record? Seventy-eight and twenty-two. He hasn't competed since. Dude, he fought in twenty twenty-one. <laughs> Are you shitting me? I thought he was done when he was fighting Attila Vey in twenty twelve in Bellator. Good lord. Okay. Anyway, so this era UFC fifty-two, where the coaches came off the Ultimate Fighter up until about UFC one hundred. In that era, Conor McGregor would have been unstoppable. In terms of his, that's an exaggeration too, but he would have had way more leverage back then. Even then, there would have been restrictions and difficulties and everything else. Plus, the appetite in the general market for fight sports wasn't then what it is now, but uh, boxing maybe, but not MMA. That era, UFC 52 to UFC 100, Connor would have cleaned the fuck up, you know, but today... Do you think MMA audiences will acclimatize to the wrestling-based style of fighters like Logan Storley and Bilal Muhammad, or will lay and pray always be booed? Well, I don't. That's not lay and pray. Uh, okay, it's a different version of lay and. Well, I, no, it's not lay and pray. Okay, a couple things. Logan Storley fought Neiman Gracie on the feet for the majority of that fight. 
the almost the almost the entirety of it. So like, is that lay and pray? No. Now I know what you're talking about. You're talking about let's say um, Logan Storley versus MVP, or maybe Bilal. What was his last fight? Luke, right? Uh, Luke, the 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 rematch. Um, what those guys have proven is that they're very good fighters. They have a very difficult skill set to deal with. Um, those particular fights, I think it's a, you have to be a little bit careful about saying their styles, although in, in certain cases you can make that claim too. But certainly in those fights, they were not very fan-friendly fights. Um, different in their own regard. These kind of positions where guys can put one hand on the mat, put their back or hip halfway to the fence, and then the guy behind them is capturing wrists and leg riding, and there's just a lot of that. You're asking, can audiences come around to that from an entertainment standpoint? No, I don't think that they can. I don't think that they can. But th- I want to be clear that, one, that those particular fights don't overall define their entire style. Um, and two, what I would say is, like, they're, it, it's the old John Fitch bet. You know, now John Fitch actually had a pretty good amount of ground and pound, but it's the old John Fitch bet, which was, I'm not going to get to the top. Now, Bala Muhammad is good on the mic and kind of presents himself in a very interesting way. Logan Storley seems otherwise of his fights from a media standpoint, almost invisible. Bilal Muhammad is quite the opposite. He's not a wallflower at all. But 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 it's still something of the John Fitch bet, which was, I'm going to win these wrestling. It's the way I win. Uh, I'm going to win with top position. I'm going to win with control. I'm going to win with ground and pound. And I'm going to be so good at it that you can't deny it to me. And Logan Storley has done that all the way to an interim um, Bellator welterweight title, which I know folks might want to scoff at, but that's still pretty difficult to do. Like Among all the fighters in history... Uh, who have ever competed, how many win belts at organizations at that level. Very, very, very few. Very few. And again, I thought Amosov was the better of the two when he and Storley fought, but it was very close and extremely competitive. And Amosov made it high action. There was no laying and praying on that one, folks. Let me assure you. So, to that end, um, there's a point there. But no, I don't think that style is ever, like you're asking, is that ever going to be fan-friendly, like that particular way of fighting? No. And then the problem with the John Fitch bet is the John Fitch bet works out really well the first time you're on your way as a contender, which is to say, like, okay, but Lal's had to think a couple of hiccups. Remember, he lost to Luke the first time, but he's been on a really nice win streak. Uh, if he ends up getting to a title shot and then loses... Unless something drastically changes about his style, getting back to that position will be nearly impossible. Like they were, they did not. The point I'm trying to make is they denied John Fitch a title shot for a long time. He had to beat the shit out of a lot of guys. They finally gave him Saint Pierre. Saint Pierre beat the bricks off of, uh, um, beat the brakes off of him. Excuse me. And you know he had some big fights after that because he was a well known and respected welterweight. But there, it, that that was it. Like. The, you know, versus Faber, who can wrestle a little bit when he needs to, certainly coming from wrestling. They just granted him title shots all the time because he was exciting. Fans liked him, blah, blah, blah. You know, so if you're going to make the John Fitch bet, it's it's very much front-end heavy on your career. Like, I'm going to make this push, and they can't deny me. And that's there actually is something to that. Like, they will reward that. It will, it will take them a while, and it will suck, but they can reward that kind of thing. But what they're not going to do is reward that when they don't have to. When they don't have to, like, so you're past the title shot and, you know, there's no demand for you to get another one, they, they just won't give it to you. Do you believe that Blahovich would deserve the title shot over Anthony Smith if Smith defeats Magomed Ankalaev? Uh, no. If Smith defeats Magomed Ankalaev, then I would not want to see Blahovich get it. No. That's a personal thing, but no. 
Was there ever a specific event or a root cause as to why the UFC banned fighters from walking out with flags? When the question was brought to Dana, whose lack of response was as expected. That's why asking him questions is like, I'm not going to say it's pointless, but it's almost. He said, let's not go there. Everyone knows why it was banned. I haven't heard anything, and in my brief research, I didn't see anything, any specific reasoning or, or an event. Do you have any thoughts or insight? Well, you know, I want to be clear about something. This is the guy that talks about free speech. I mean, you can burn the flag in this country um, because it's considered um, a form of speech. Of course, no one's asking anyone to burn a flag at a UFC event, but the point I'm trying to make is speech is not just speech, uh, although that's obviously a big part of it, but speech is also the way in which you can adorn yourself with symbols and or um, other items. A flag is a form of speech. It's not merely a form of identification, but it is a form of speech. So you don't get to be the guy who is the protector of uh, all things free speech and then deny people in your organization, uh, independent contractors, no less, the ability to walk out with flags. However, that's a side issue. You're asking about, like, why it was done. This shit drives me crazy. He's like, everyone knows why. Well, no, you see, I don't because I am not a mind reader. I can make some educated guesses, but I actually don't know. Here is my educated guess. My educated guess is that it has something to do with the invasion of Russia and that, while it must be nice when they have fighters from, who was it, Marina Rose? I think that's right, who was from Ukraine, and she won, and she held up her flag after the invasion, and it was a big heartfelt moment. I think what they're really concerned about is potentially someone walking out with the Russian flag and then getting booed or whatever. Although I would say, while Ukraine is still very much in the news, anti, like, anti-Russian like anti sentiment is not as high as I thought it would get, which is good. I'm, I, I'm not in favor of anti-Russian sentiment per se. Um, tensions at least within the na native U.S. population, appear to have been ratcheted down, at least as... It, it, although, God, I went to some bar where... Oh, this is in Florida, of all places. Boy, Florida talks a real big game, and then you go and you order... I didn't order this. Actually, BC ordered this. This is true, and he'll verify this. We went to a place, and he ordered a Moscow mule, and they were like, we only serve Kiev mules. And I'm like, get the fuck... I, what, what, what the fuck is this? Will you stop... <laughs> A Kiev mule? I mean, okay, all right, we're doing this dumb shit everywhere we go now? Okay, all right, I guess that's, God, people are stupid. That If you work at a, if there are any bartenders out there, and you work at a bar, and your boss is telling you you can't serve Moscow mules, they have to be Kiev mules, just know that the owner and or the, your boss is a fucking moron. Dude, I mean, I live in one of the most liberal cities in America, in the world, maybe. And I can go to a bar and order a fucking Moscow mule. Like, okay. I mean, it's just the stupidest shit on earth. But I think that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. They, 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 they I think, would rather avoid that situation. Or maybe, you know, maybe after, uh, who was it? The, uh, the, Af the Afghan kid um, out of Extreme Couture. Jake Shields is his coach. God, I praised him before on another podcast. Um, the, he got remember he got called by the Israeli guy. He got called a terrorist and like all kinds of fucking horrible names. And uh, you know Dana White's response was like, "Well, that's why they fight it out." It's like, okay, well that's that's actually not why they fight it out, but okay. Um, the point I'm trying to make is, I think that they might be trying to avoid overtly political, like in a world where everything you do in life now in America is has a layer of a political overtone to it. 
I mean, I was reading this this piece in this book that I, I'm, I'm looking on, on actually on, on polarization, and there's a claim that you can almost match someone's uh, voting, not voting patterns, uh, party identification by virtue of their proximity to a Whole Foods. Like everything we do has layered into our identity some kind of now political um, dimension. And I think what they're trying to do is let people say where they're from without getting expressly over in that direction. But again, I want to be clear. This is just a guess. I do not know because Dana White has asked us to be mind readers and that is not something that I can do. So there you have it. Also, like, I just got to say, it's a little mealy-mouthed to be like, hey, we're going to do something and we're going to ban people from doing this. And then when the media asks you, being like, you know why. Dude, if you believe in this, if this is a thing that your organization is practicing, you should get up to the microphone and defend it. <laughs> like, you don't have to do it every time. Just one time. Just one time. Or not even defend it. Just say, here's what we're doing. You can like it or not. That's it. I'd be, okay, whatever. You could say it's great. You could say it's dumb. You can have a reaction. We'll make out a video. We'll put out a video about it. But we just, you know, you guys know why. No, we don't. We are not mind readers. We would like to know. But the fact that they make it ambiguous means you can't ever really, really pin them down for something. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if I know what your reasoning is, later on I might be able to say, well, you guys had X reasoning for this issue, and now you have a Y reasoning for a very similar issue. Why do you now differ? But because they never have a, stated a particular preference or a, a specific reason why they're doing this, there's no real way to know. Luke, have you thought about moving somewhere with a larger piece of land so you can invest in building your own studio space, maybe above a detached garage? Yeah, well... Okay, let me explain to you. Okay, if you live in the United States, I'm not sure what the... If you're watching from Europe or Australia, I don't know how this would affect you. But the real estate market in the United States now is fucking insane. A friend of mine told me this. uh, And I would like to say I didn't believe it, but I did. Listen to this shit. There is a house on the market in a really nice part of town. Now, it's a nice part of town. Okay, so you know you're going to pay a lot. They were asking $1.2 million for it. Ready for this? With no central AC. Zero central AC. It ended up going for $1.6 million cash. <laughs> like, dude, can you imagine going to the bank and getting a $1.6 million loan I realize that the person paid cash for it, but that's, I don't have, I don't have $1.6 million, okay? But so, so imagine you wanted, like, forget about the cash part. Imagine you went to the fucking bank and you got a $1.6 million loan and you put it down on a place that doesn't even have central air conditioning. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And someone here in town did it cash. Dude, I believe me, the biggest issue I have is not that there's not space available in the way that you're talking about at an affordable price. It exists. The problem is it doesn't really exist in D.C., not anywhere that I have seen. I did find one place not far from here, but it was right next to a major, major, major avenue called New York Avenue. And all these trucks were coming in and you could just hear all the downshifting from them. It was like, it was not soundproofed at all. It was very affordable, but it wasn't soundproofed. And when I say like not soundproofed, I mean the, the, 
the office that I have now uh, at least has carpeting and stuff like that, you know. This had nothing, like just concrete everywhere. Like just the sound is the worst imaginable, yeah. Um, so it just wouldn't work. It would just take way more, way more work. It was affordable, but like, dude, that this is why I talk about. You guys make fun of me. Now this one I got in Jersey City. I've not had this is a perfectly reasonable price. You're like, you make fun of the expensive haircuts, dude. I'm not saying the haircuts are not expensive or not worth the price. This is what I'm talking about with the real estate. It's out of control, and it's not just here either. It's a lot of American cities that where everything is super overheated. This one, a place going for, <laughs> I, I mean, I just, when he told me that, I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, 1-6 for no air conditioning, central air conditioning, cash, cash. Dude, you gotta be fucking kidding me. You gotta be, who, who can pay for that? Who has $1.6 million floating around such that, yes, you are buying into a very nice area. Yes, that, that part is real. Like, and that's going to make it, that means you're going to pay a million bare minimum. But dude, you're gonna pay one six for a house with no central AC. You gotta be fucking kidding me. So that's what I'm up against. Here we go. After being an MMA fan for many years, I'm finally going to my first UFC event in Austin. Cannot wait, and the entire something looks great. Someone asking for pro tips. I always say the same thing. I'm gonna say it one more time. If you can't sit right up on the cage, you don't want to be on the floor too far back. Like, floor seats at the back of where floor seats exist are terrible. Don't do that. My recommendation is to find seating somewhere middle on the bottom panel that's raised. Right. So once the seats start going upstairs, find the middle of the bottom portion of that. Eyes level or slightly above the level of the cage. Uh, that will give you the best seat. Uh, okay, Luke, this person writes, number one, I, this person says uh, that they prefer Michael Bisping's commentary over Cormier. They prefer Fitzgerald to Anik. Rogan is fine. I prefer the two-man booth over the three. Cruz and Felder are growing on me. What is your broadcast preference? I actually like, I mean, I kind of like it the way it is, which is to say, I actually think Fitzgerald's really talented, but, you know, Anik's the guy, so having that two-tiered system is fine. If you're asking, like, my pick, it would really depend all of them are pretty good. My favorites are, well, it's changing a lot. It used to be Cruz, but he's just there a lot less these days. And he's always fighting with Bisping, <laughs> which is weird. Um, I guess I'd say, I guess I'd say Anik, Cruz, and maybe Felder? Something like that. The thing is, is like I, you know, Bisping and Felder, I would say, are both really great, but Felder's a better pair for Cruz because him and Bisping are always sniping at each other. Bisping's a better fit for Cormier than Rogan is, so that's another good option. They're all pretty, I mean, there's not a huge wide dispar this disparity between them, to be quite honest with you, but I might go something like that. Um, some weird question I don't understand. 
Uh, look, if Usman is in fact injured with his hand, still no timetable announced, do you think it makes sense to do Hamzat versus Leon for the interim winner fights Usman? Well, if he's really going to be out the rest of the year, maybe. Maybe. He would have to be out a while for me to say that. He'd have to be out a while. Yeah. Luke, why couldn't Glover have been in the UFC and just fight in Brazil when they would go there for cards during his whole visa issues? They didn't go there for cards during his whole visa issues, at least not often. So the UFC, uh, partly it could be, let me, let me see. Um, let's go to Glover Teixeira. So he made his UFC debut in Las Vegas. In 2012, they went to UFC. They went to Brazil in uh, for UFC 153. Before that, I think they went for like 147 as well. So actually, let's go back. So if he made his debut at 146, but his first, his, he made his debut in Brazil for UFC at 153. How many Brazil shows were there previous to that? So let's see. Uh, Canada, Las Vegas. Denver, Los Angeles, Calgary, San Jose, uh, Nevada. Okay, so they made one in 2012 for Silva Franklin 2. Okay, so right around that time. Then they went to Rev. I remember. I, so at June, the one before that would be uh, Maynard versus Guida. That's when I got the call from Spike being like, hey, you want to try out for the show? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, so then before that, they were in Sunrise, Florida, Las Vegas, Las Vegas, Fairfax, East Rutherford, Atlanta. I mean, I'm going to keep going here. Um, Stockholm, Sydney, Saitama. The point being is that whatever there was, Anderson Silva fought Okami on that one, right? So let me go back to that one. Yushin Okami. Okay. So what was the fight where he lost to... Um, Anderson Silva. That was 134-2011. I believe that was the first time they had been back in Brazil in some time, right? I believe that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you're asking about Glover's career. So, Glover was fighting in Brazil. Yes, somewhat during that time. There's a minor overlap with it. But, he fought in Brazil... In 2009, 2010, parts of 2011, but again, I think he was either on the verge of it or whatever. Uh, and then he got signed at the very, like right when they were beginning to make the move. So like there was a part of his career where he just wasn't able to come back where that was the issue. So there was like several year period, basically from the end of, for most of 08, all of 09, all of 2010, and then even parts of 2011. Um, that's why it just didn't work. Luke, as a fellow degenerate washed vapor, what are your favorite flavors to smoke? I will tell you, folks, listen, I quit smoking smoking about 20 years ago, a little more than that even. So I know what it's like to quit smoking. Uh, it takes it took me a couple of times to, to get it right. I have tried to quit. I have not smoked in, I won't say a week, but, you know, 
um, four or five days, something like that, something like that. Maybe a little, maybe about a week, which I realize is not much time. I'm in the process of trying to quit. I realize I had, you know, six months of fun, but it's terrible for you. It wasn't making me feel good. You know, when you're sedentary, you don't really notice it. And then I started getting back to exercising more regularly, and I was like, oh, right, right. This feels terrible. I do not wish to feel this way anymore. So that was when I realized I had to stop. So I, I, I this doesn't mean you, I, I, I won't vape again, because again, it's always like up and down a little bit at the end, but. It took me some time. Um, Would you give us a quick breakdown of Max versus Volk 3? What strengths each fighter needs to take advantage of? What weaknesses they need to tighten up, uh, etc.? I'm a huge Max fan, but I have to say Volk looked unstoppable in his last bout. I have to tell you, if I'm Max and you saw some of this in the uh, Yair Rodriguez fight... There's a whole different conversation around the stand-up and why that might be his best and only option to win. But what I would caution everyone is, or at least what I would, what I'm thinking about, I really wonder how much Max is going to try and wrestle this time. Um, because there might be a point where you just say, "I don't know how to solve the problem of his fainting and movement and confusion and what he calls brain scrambling." Right? That's what he called it with me. Um, at some point. Like, how solvable is that problem? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, but on the ground, it's not like Volk can just be, like, easily taken to the ground. But again, if you can create back exposure, and this is something Max has worked on, I really wonder about that a little bit. I wonder. At a bare minimum, you know, just changing the... the, the you might be like, oh, well, look, well, if he got out of Brian Ortega's guillotine triangle, what's to say he couldn't get out of that? Yeah, but it's like, it's not even really about that. It's just about changing the game up a little bit so that you bring in a dimensionality to it that makes it a little bit um, different than the last one. If 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 it just takes place on the feet, like what can Max do? I'm sure the things that, that his corner can figure out, but it's not a substantial amount. And taking him down is easier said than done, but I just wonder like how much mixing that in to the extent possible, creating back exposure, trying to find the back, working for it, how much that does to change the complexion of the fight. How, to what extent does wrestling along the fence line, creating back exposure become a part of the next game plan. Um, okay, thoughts on the Poirier versus Covington fight. Firstly, do you believe it will happen? <laughs> I guess I don't, but I've thought that about a lot of fights that happen, so keep that in mind. A lot of people are suggesting this is a tactic by Dustin because he knows that Colby is going to be in court. With Colby making the brain injury claim, it may be that he will have to turn it down. That potentially makes Dustin look great after Colby called him out. However, should the fight go ahead, how do you rate Dustin's chances? Not great. Not great. Listen, man, I don't Dustin is not a dummy. Like he knows this is up a weight class. I'm sure he's trained with Colby Covington like Dude, like that fight favors Colby Covington in a lot of ways, man. Again, uh, granted, Dustin's a bigger lightweight. It's not a huge trade-off in size. It's not what we're saying. But this is a weight class where Colby, you know, whatever you want to rank him at, he, he physically is fine there, right? I mean, that's what you could say. He physically is not overwhelmed at 170. We've not seen evidence of that. And obviously, he has shown a, a you know high ability to win uh, against, especially against people who have not suspect wrestling, but you know who don't have, who can't match his intensity and level of ability in wrestling. 
Um, Dustin's not that. And, you know, you look at a guy like Colby and his ability to get to the takedown and then find the back a little bit. Not full on two hooks in, but, you know, leg rides and whatnot where he's positioned himself between the opponent and the fence. He's occupying that middle space. I would favor Colby to win that fight almost every time, to be honest with you. And you guys know I have a very, very, very high degree of respect for Dustin Poirier, but it just the reality is what it is, man. Like, it's a super difficult fight. Also, the other part is, I, I listen, I don't know what the, you know, I've been watching a lot of Better Call Saul, so I don't know what the rules are about this, but I would imagine, like, I, I don't know if your question is this way, but I would imagine Dustin does not want any part of whatever Jorge and Colby have as, a, like, a lawsuit or a criminal matter. Like, you know, Maybe he did it where, like, oh, he I know he won't accept it because he's telling everyone he had this brain injury and now he's going to accept a mixed martial arts fight. Like, how does that work? Maybe. I, I honestly think that if Dustin's telling you he's desperate for a fight, you should probably believe him. He's one of the few fighters I'll take, uh, for the most part, at their at their word. You know, a lot of these guys are just playing games on social media and or in interviews just saying stuff that's totally not true. But with him, I tend to think that, like, if he's accepting a, a Colby Covington fight because he just really wants to fight. He really wants to make that happen. So that that would be my best guess. But it's you know it's probably a, fi- a fight of last resort to an extent because, yes, it is an opponent with a big name at this point or at least a, rep- a reasonably um, popular name. But it's a terrible fight for him. Then you ask, finally, is Colby dodging Hamzat? Dana said this will be his next fight for Boers, but we haven't heard a peep out of Colby about a matchup. I mean, if you're Colby and you're in this criminal matter with Jorge and you're claiming brain injury, would you take a fight with Kamzat? I sure as hell wouldn't. I want to answer one more. Uh, Could Colby take his game to the next level if he was a better BJJ practitioner? He mauls and controls his opponents so well on the ground and threatens chokes, but he can never execute and find, and this person wrote, finish like like the people from Finland. Uh, find the finish. Um, I'm going to say this. The answer is yes. He could, but it would not just, he couldn't just bootstrap and then add it to the game. That addition of the game changes it. So here's what I mean. When he puts that choke on Lawler a couple times, go back and watch the Lawler fight. Lawler addresses it, but Lawler doesn't really panic because he was applying it in a circumstance that was tight enough and close enough where you had to respect it, but pretty far away from having to fear or act urgently around it. You did not have to act, you know, you have to address it. But when I say urgent, I mean like thrashing. Contrast that where if you if you have a guillotine, a standing guillotine on someone, and they're very good at like let's say evasion of submissions, they're going to act very urgently around this. The point I'm trying to make is, in order to get like, do I think that it's it's very difficult for me to believe that adding submissions to his game in a way where they were like really accessible and he could find them would make his game worse. I don't believe that. I believe it would make his game better, but it would make his game different. Because he would have to find certain positions more thoroughly than he has. Like, you couldn't just do leg rides and think you're going to get a rear naked choke. Like, you have to go to the back to get it. And people can reverse from the back in ways where they try to reverse from the, from 
a leg ride, it's not really the, the same consequences aren't there. So it's a deeper level of positioning with a deeper commitment to a finish, knowing that if you don't do it correctly, um, there is you know a greater possibility of it all backfiring. The genius of what guys like Leon Edwards and um, Colby Covington do, and they're very different, but one of the things that they do is I've talked about before these half positions, leg ride. I'm I'm in a I'm in a place where I can control, land a little bit, threaten a little bit, but if something goes south, I'm not overly committed. If you're going to commit to positions, not again, this is not true in every submission case, but if you're going to really add submissions, dude, you have to get to, what, what do they always say? Position before submission. Well, that changes your game, doesn't it? So um, I do think that this style of game that Colby has, will, when he gets when he ages out, it's going to really backfire because he's not going to be able to do it. Um, where if he had a more submission-oriented game, it'd probably last him a little bit longer, but it would change it too. So you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to do everything I do, and now I also have submissions. No, you can do some of the things you did before, but yeah, now you have to do new stuff to bring that to bear. All right. With that in mind, let's see what you guys have for the paid questions, if in fact there are any. Let's see. All right. Let's see. Do you intend on staying in D.C. for the foreseeable future or are there other parts of the USA or conversely other countries that appeal to you in the medium to long term? Uh, my wife and I discussed this. We would not be opposed to moving. We just don't know where to go, especially right now with the market. Like, I have put so much money into this house and so much time and I've sat in this neighborhood for you know, a long time, almost 20 years I've been in this particular neighborhood. And, um, you know, what's the whole point of, like, selling this house? <laughs> and then, you know, I, I would make a, a lot of money based on what I initially paid uh, just to give it all right back to the banks. Like, I'm not interested in doing that shit, you know. I, I want to go to a place where, like, you know, I, no. like, And it's like, oh, well, there's a bunch of cheap places. Like, go live in the suburbs. Dude, living in the suburbs, listen, if you like living in the suburbs, I am not trying to convince you you should live my way. But the reverse should also be true. Dude, living in the suburbs, to me, fucking blows. Car culture in America is awful. People spending hours each day of their lives sitting in traffic where you have to drive to the gym. and you have to, Dude, if you live in a city where, you know, or, or a, a, a small place or whatever, where you have to drive to a strip mall to go to a strip mall bar... You were living in the to me in a place I would never fucking live. You should live in a place where you can walk to things, where there's public transportation. Yeah, I have a car too. I've had this car since 2015. You know how many miles I have on it? 32,000. That's from 2015, May of 2015. So actually, it's been about let's see, uh, what is it? What would that be? Seven years. Seven years. I've got 32. I don't drive much. I don't. I don't. I don't have a need to drive much. Groceries, taking the kid to the zoo or whatever. Sometimes, yeah, fine. But other than that, I walk. Um, like. I want to live in a community where I can access things in that way. I want to live where populations are dense. I think cities add, you know, I, I know that some of you consume media that has painted America cities as hellholes. I'm here to tell you that they are, <laughs> they're just not telling the truth. I would much rather live for all, now DC and the, and the overheated uh, real estate market's a problem too, but um, 
my mortgage right now is quite affordable. I, I, I don't need to go anywhere. And wherever I go, I'm not going to like the middle of nowhere so I can live in some mansion where I have to drive to everything. No, fuck that, dude. Like, I have always, always, always thought a superior way to live is where you can live in a place where the population is at least reasonably dense and you can get to things on feet. I think you have much more colorful life. You have much more eclectic neighbors. And you have more things to do and see, and you can access it in ways that are healthier, that make sense for urban planning, that make sense for development and zoning. This shit where people just live in the suburbs and then drive to the gym and drive to the bar and drive to the dentist and drive to see a friend, and, and they're always in their cars all the time. I think that's hell on earth, personally. Count me out. Who honestly wants to see Colby versus Dustin? This person writes... Colby needs to fight contenders and not old fighters on losing streaks and lightweights. Um, well, I bet there'd be a lot of people who would want to see it. The average UFC fan who might not be that plugged in would be like, oh, star power versus star power, yay. I grant, it, I don't think it'd be as big as people might imagine, but I don't think it'd be some some dull fight. Dude, people want to see Randy Couture fight James Tony. Was there any confusion about which way that fight was going to go? Nays a court. <laughs> this person writes, Chandler lied, he says. His motto is see you at the top, but he sent Tony to go see Hades. Yes, he did. Are we uh, living through the golden age of MMA right now? We're living in the best time it's ever been to be a combat sports fan. That part is true. Boxing every week, MMA every week, MMA easily accessible on your... Dude, like, when I first started watching UFC... Cell phones were, or and I mean, like not not when I first started watching, but like recapturing it as an adult. Most people were just getting cell phones. They were the flip kind. There was no such thing as streaming. It didn't exist. Uh, oh, maybe you could stream like, what was it? Winamp. You guys remember Winamp? Uh, you could stream like music a little bit like that, but most websites didn't have it. There was no such thing as like streaming as we understand it didn't exist. Um, UFC was very infrequent. There were Pride DVDs you could buy, but they were you know you had to, that was a thing you had to go and do. You had to go to Best Buy and go look in the Pride section and go get it. Um, you know, and and the MMA and boxing cultures were far apart, and there wasn't a lot of media covering it, and like there was just a lot that just wasn't there. And now there's so much all the time easily accessible and it's all high quality like <laughs> you just it was not like this at all when I first started covering the sport is it someone writes is it possible to fight Mexican style while maintaining a high fight IQ yes of course now you mean like Mexican boxing style I don't know if I don't know if we've really seen a defined Mexican uh, MMA style there's a there's a fairly clear uh, boxing Mexican style um, I don't know that we're I don't know that we have the same equivalent in MMA if you just want to say like aggressive sort of boxing in the pocket something like an Adrian Yanez maybe you could say that he's obviously very talented and very good um, but Brandon Moreno doesn't fight quite like that you know so I don't I don't know exactly what that what that might mean Someone writes, I'm convinced uh, the referee, Keith Peterson, did smell of alcohol and cigs, but it was from hand sanitizer gel that was at the start of the pandemic, and it stank. Yeah, it's very clever. <laughs> 
talk about my background in martial arts. I've done this a million times. There's nothing exceptional about it. Off and on, I've got about nine years and some change uh, training uh, in all the various forms, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, boxing, kickboxing, then separated those two. Never made it very far in all, all, any of them because I jumped around all the time, but you know, was pretty consistent in the gyms one way or the other. And was just a hobbyist. Like, there's nothing about my background that is in any way accomplished or um, exemplary. Just an average dude who showed up wanting to learn things. That's it. I'm a big Gaethje fan, this person writes. My cousin thinks that that was his last title shot. Not necessarily. Am I biased to think if Chandler gets his hands on the belt, is that a five-round title rematch that's winnable for Justin? Yes. P.S. I don't know what the fuck that means. But... Um, last title shot another title shot is probably unlikely but there is still uncertainty in that division there's still some we think we think that Charles Oliveira is the guy but we don't really know that until Islam comes around um, whatever your views of that may be so I would say a title shot is definitely unlikely definitely unlikely I wouldn't rule it out. Someone says, uh, your breakdown of fighter mentality and their views on governance is gold, man. No question, just kudos on the clear head and blurry times. Thanks. Oh, someone is here. I don't know who it is. Can't answer it because I'm doing this, so I guess they're going to wait. Someone says, I missed Dan Hardy's UFC commentary, but it seems like a lot of people hated it. Really? He was my favorite. Any ideas on why this is? I don't know. I'd love to see him as an MK guest too. Yeah, we'll have him on. I used to have him on all the time on my radio show. I'll have him on again. Dan's the man. Like, I've got not a single bad thing to... I did the radio show with him. I said it before. It was me, Dan Hardy, as hosts. And our guests were Jake Shields, Izzy, uh, both Shevchenko sisters, Angela Hill, Laura Sanko. I'm not sure who else came through. I think that's it. Um. Yeah, and I host I hosted the radio show with him. It was great. Like Dan's the man, dude. I wish y'all could have been there in New York City. We had a we had a fucking blast. It was a good time. Izzy was, bro. They they mobbed him. They mobbed him. Wouldn't now be the perfect time for the UFC to get into the boxing business? No. Even with their own roster, they have enough interest to make it successful. No, they don't. Well, okay, I'm not saying that. I'll take that back. But Conor versus Dustin started out as a possible charity boxing match. Guys, the UFC's model <laughs> thrives for a lot of reasons. One of them is that they don't have the federal regulations that boxing promoters do that uh, create the boxing industry in the way that it is, that where the titles are not owned by the promoter, where the, the boxer has uh, you know, a series of rights from the Ali Act, um, auditing power and many, many others. These mechanisms change the power structure where UFC going over there, like all of those things that make boxing the way it is, people are like, oh, boxing is a mess. The way it's designed is to make sure that there is at least enough protections for enough entities, including the, and most especially the fighters, so that there is some kind of you know, independent ranking system, all kinds of stuff. So that... Um, there is at least some degree of parity between athlete and promoter, right? None of that shit exists in MMA. 
So, like, if you have a situation where you're, you have an arguable monopoly saying we're going to give up the protections, not the protections, we're going to give up this con- these conditions so that we can go into a sport that has uh, none of those conditions, or at least very few of them, when it's already crowded and we're going to make money off of it, I mean, they, they, they might be able to make money off of that, and I'm sure that they probably would on some level. But it would never, ever be, A, what it is in MMA, and B, like, the boxing promoters. Like, dude, MMA fans have a real but somewhat small tolerance for boxing. If you got Connor and Dustin to fight in a boxing match, at the end of it, folks would be like, well, why don't we just get him to fight MMA? Oh, well, Dustin could fight, I don't know. Who would he fight? He would fight, you know, Jermel Charlo or something. Well, Dustin would get waxed. I mean, and you know, <laughs> like, well, does it? No, like, no, like, it would never work. It would never work in any kind of meaningful way. Can you touch on the fact that Habib is far above Oliveira in the all-time debate? Can I touch on that? I can. I mean, you mean is there a claim that he is? Yes, there is a claim that he is. Are you asking me to subscribe to it? I mean, Oliveira's not done yet. Let's see how it goes. Oliveira has been sub more times than Habib has lost rounds. Yes, we made this point before. If you're looking at the totality of their careers, Habib's is certainly more distinguished. If you're looking at their championship runs, Oliveira's knocking on the door. Didn't Tony's double weight cut for the Gaethje fight ruin his career? No. I mean, I'm sure it didn't help. Really, your argument would be, I'm just trying to understand this, that what was more impactful was that he cut weight a couple times within reasonably close periods. What was it, a couple of weeks, I think? Something like that, three weeks maybe? Versus the vicious beating that he took. Uh, for nearly 25 minutes. Like, that would be... I don't know. I mean, I'm not here to say that the double weight cut did helped. I don't think it helped. But of all the things I would list, the vicious beating would be number one on that list. Now that Gaethje's weakness to BJJ has been exposed, I feel that would be a winnable fight for Tony if he could take a shot. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's not, not a bad point. Maybe. What were you doing when the DC sniper was active? I was in college. Someone writes, while I love three shows a week format, do you think a Monday and Friday show with a potentially some extra content midweek and a Saturday post-fight show when applicable is a better format? I do think that there is some retooling, and we've talked about this internally a lot, actually, that the way we've been doing it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like we need to rethink that a little bit or rethink the shows anyway. Monday, I don't think would change at all, at least not very much. Wednesdays and Fridays, we've, we, we are definitely toying with ways to make them different and better, for sure. For sure. In regards to elite generalists in MMA, i.e. Oliveira, is it better to specialize in one art and attempt to perfect it before graduating into another, i.e. BJJ, or to concurrently train? That's a co- that's a that's a question for a coach. I don't really know what the best answer is for development. You know, I will say that I've been surprised by Oliveira's. My answer, my my inclination would be to say um, neither. My inclination would be to say 
rather than 50-50 or 100-0 and then eventually the other way, 100-0 or whatever, I would actually say it slightly differently. I would say it like... Um, 70 30 75 25 like for example Henry Cejudo got really good as a striker and folks don't realize this but he and this is you know overstated but he did have some boxing experience he did win a golden gloves tournament and that that doesn't mean like oh I won a golden gloves tournament like this is like ADCC equivalent no that's not the equivalent but what I'm trying to point out is it wasn't like he had um when he started training MMA he already had a little bit of understanding of balance and how the mechanics of throwing punches and everything else. Like there was already that, some of that baked in. Now there was a lot of development that had to go into it, but the wrestling was pretty good. And some of that had to be, you know, retrofitted for MMA and whatnot. But the point I'm trying to make is he got really, really, really good at one and had something on the back burner that he could then bring up versus both on the front burner or then all the way one or the other. I don't, I don't think either of those is the approach. I think you definitely do want to have a specialty. But you need to have enough of something else that you can weave into your game, really improve, and that that could be something. Again, I go back to it on Monday show. It sounds kind of obvious, but think about it this way. It's easy to beat low-level opposition any way you want if you're really good. But that's not the point. The point I wanted to make is how many guys can actually beat people two different ways, where if they had to strike with someone, they could win, and if they had to do jiu-jitsu, they could win, Right? And they could, I mean, not not just like win this fight, but like they can reasonably be, like if, is Oliveira's jiu-jitsu good enough for anyone in that division? We'll see about Islam, but the answer I would say is probably yes. Is his striking good enough for anyone in that division? We'll have to see how it goes, but I would say probably yes. He can reasonably beat, again, situations will vary or whatever, but he can reasonably be expected to beat elite fighters in his division in either way. So when he can combine both of them, it becomes overpowering. Now, one was first as a skill set, and the other one sort of came along after the fact. But, yeah, I think for me, getting really good at one while maintaining some skills in another and then bringing the other one up behind it, I think is the best way to do it. But, you know, this is a question for a coach. Sort of the same question. In other words, if you were advising a fighter, how would you – oh, it's the same guy. Yeah, okay. What's next for Rob Font, still elite? Here's the thing about Rob Font, man. He's very good. Um, I don't think a move up to 145 would help because there's an, a power. Well, I mean, maybe his power will go up a little bit at 145, but there was a power issue at 135. Now, maybe that's from the weight cut drain. We'll have to see. Um, he's taking a lot of damage. He's taking a lot of damage. The Aldo fight and then the last one were, and there's some other ones too, the Whitaker fight. Like, there's been some brutal fights, man. He's tough as shit, but he's been in some brutal fights. Cheeto Vera wore his face out. I think he can still beat top 10 guys, but he probably, you know, I would not pencil him in as a future title contender. It's a weird question. What would you value more for a purple belt competitive jujitsu athlete, drilling or live rounds? Drilling. But you mean you need, you need both? Like it's not one or the other. Also, check out 135-pound prospect Bryce Meredith trains out of MMA Lab with Tim Welsh and O'Malley. I will be on the lookout. Unless this is some made-up name that's like some porn star or something, and you got this out of me. Uh, you know, it's funny. This person writes using numbing cream 
on while getting a tattoo is like wearing gloves while lifting. The pain is a rite of passage. Yes, all of them I've gotten. This is the only one I've ever gotten with uh, with numbing cream. And he says, jokes aside, thank you. You know what's funny? I actually asked a bunch of tattoo guys how they feel about it. Like tattoo artists, like how do you feel about it? And uh, a bunch of them told me they use numbing cream. They're just like, listen, man, yes, it used to be a thing where you just kind of sucked it up and write a passage and that was part of the thing and, and that kept people from getting it. Like the truth is numbing cream has made it a lot easier for people who would otherwise be deterred from getting tattoos to get them. But if people who get like, you know, head to toe tattoos and tattoo for a living say it's no big deal I'm not really in a position to disagree the other thing I would say is I saw some comment from a dude last week who said he had like a sleeve and that I was being a wimp because <laughs> he said what was what was the expression that getting a tattoo to him felt like scratching a sunburn my guy I have been, spent many 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 hours in a tattoo chair many hours everyone's got different pain sensitivities and everyone's got different pain tolerances Right? Some people's skin is actually more uniquely um, uh, susceptible to trauma and therefore pain. Okay, So not, not everyone has the same kinds of skin. There are different colors, obviously. There's different, there's different ages, different conditions. There's also going to be different pain tolerances generally and then different pain um, sensory that comes from uh, you know, a, a series of genetic factors. Let me explain something to you. I have had horrible sunburn that I have scratched. My tattoos never felt like that. If yours felt that way, I'm not mad at you, bro. Congrats. Like, that's awesome. That's great. I have scratched sunburn before. It feels one one hundredth like what it is when I get a tattoo. Now, maybe that's just the people that have done it for me. And then all of them. I had a lady tattoo my back who was real uh, soft-handed. So I would discount that one. But, like, the one I have on my ribs, obviously that was really bad. Arm... Uh, the part where he didn't have the numbing cream, which was at the wrist part. Like, dude, uh, this one I used no numbing cream on. It did not, I, I mean, I didn't cry or anything. I just sucked it up and tolerated it. But like, and, and I should be clear, the pain of it has never deterred me from getting one. Like if I wanted one, I just was like, well, that's just part of the deal. But like, if <laughs> if you get a tattoo and it feels like scratching a sunburn, my, my guy, you are very lucky. That is 100% not my experience. And I know what that feels like. Vast difference. Thoughts on the fighters class action getting sent back down? Judge said UFC's model was properly considered. Don't think the case is dead, but now we're even more delayed. Probably by several years. Oh, that's a good question. Is this breaking news? Did I miss this? What did Hey Not The Face say? Hey, not the face. I have not seen this. Uh, I've not seen this. I, it's a it's a wonderful question. I'm sorry to sit here and mouth breathe. I don't I don't know. I did not. I thought Bullware hadn't. Hadn't waited. They were waiting on the tuna case, right? Which was a related industry case that, depending on how that went, we would get some clarity here. But, um, I'll, I honestly, I don't know. I'm going to look into this one here. I'm going to make a note here. I'm going to highlight your question. And I'm going to put it here. Okay, I'm going to get to that one. Uh, some other people saying some nice stuff. 
no central AC. I know it's crazy, man. I cannot. I do. When that guy told me, my buddy told me that, I was like, "What the fuck? Can you imagine buying a one point six million dollar house cash, no central? I just couldn't believe it." Is the narrative Sambo versus Jiu Jitsu fair since Habib and Islam have trained for years with Leo Vieira? Listen, Sambo uh, was a system that created in the ninth, uh, the twentieth century uh, by a guy who had adapted a lot of stuff from judo for, as I understand it, for Russian military needs. And it's got a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Um, all these guys cross-train and whatnot, but I'm sure that, like, they're, the Sambo style feels significant. This is no revelation, but it significantly feels more um, MMA-ready, not merely by virtue of the striking, but some of the cage tactics that, that uh, for example, Gilbert Burns was talking to us about, like the way in which they approach certain positions that, you know, Jiu-Jitsu doesn't really have a great answer for. But um, in, in, at, th- at this level, like, there's so much cross-training that, like, style versus style, you know, which one's more MMA-ready? Sambo is more MMA-ready, but... Um, and then more MMA-valuable, I would say. But um, in terms of pure submission threat, I would still rate um, Jiu-Jitsu guys as a little bit better. So, like, each one has a value, you know. Uh, let's see if there's anything else. And then we will call it a day. In a little bit. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Ferguson and Habib are coaches for tough. I can see Habib coming back after a season of Tony pressing him. I don't have much interest. If you guys do, that's cool. Like, I, I can... Like, what would get me to watch The Ultimate Fighter? Like, serious question. What would get me to watch it? I don't know the answer to that. Almost nothing. I understand if you can't go deep on this, but do you have any direct contact with UFC and its officials? Um, yeah, some. I remember Dana saying he does this with some reliable journalists. Well, those are the ones that, you know, I'll leave it at that. But uh, UFC PR staff, for sure. Um, when I'm on site, you know, I've had, yeah, yeah, I've had, some, I, I can't say exactly who I've talked to, talked to, but um High-level UFC management on-site, yeah, I've I've had a lot of conversations over the years with them. Sure, they're very nice people. They're very nice people. You know, they're not they're not they're not bad. They're not mean to me. I'm sure Dana doesn't like me. I had a boss who knows them really well tell me he's like they don't like you, but he said they don't hate me. So that was that was interesting. But they definitely don't like me, uh, which is fine. You know, I'm not out there trying to be liked per se. Um, but there's a lot of them that are real cool. The, the, I tell you what, man, the PR people these days. Dude, the PR people when I first started were fucking nightmares over there. And the ones today are, they couldn't be more helpful. They're great. They're easy to work with. They're professionals. They're smart. Like, you won't hear me talk bad about them. They're awesome. How do I like my eggs and coffee? I get my, I have one egg every morning. I fry it until it's, uh, my wife has this pan she got from Columbia it's real small. It's designed just for cooking eggs. That's all that you have. You put the egg in there, and then it cooks within, like, I'm not even kidding, like 30, 45 seconds, if that. And then I, so it's fried, basically. And then you pop it, and the yolk goes on everything. And coffee, I take it black, sometimes a little bit of Splenda. Not a dead wrong, but the most educated fighter ever was probably Rosie Sexton. Yes, I think she has a PhD, if I'm not mistaken. Shouts to Rosie. Pioneer as well. Costa versus Rockhold for UFC 277. Rockhold's got more ways to win, but I just don't know what kind of shape he's in. 
mentally, physically. I don't know what the weight cut's going to be like. Rockhold is much more talented than Costa. That is to be, in terms of well-roundedness. Doesn't have the firepower that Costa does. Um, doesn't have the willingness to take punishment that Costa does. Probably doesn't have the durability that Costa does. But in terms of like the overall skills offensively he has, he's significantly more well-rounded. Is the amount of contenders who've lost two title shots in a short time ultimately short-sighted? 125, 35, 45, 55, 70, 85... All have top guys with two losses for the title in a short period of time. Some with multiple, like 170, 185. How about, you don't have the rematch thing, but how about at 125 for women, Valentina, where they have to go to the fifth-ranked person? Yes, there's probably been a little bit of rematching that needs to get fixed, but this is this can be undone in short order. It's a fine point to bring up. I, I actually would agree. But not, not a uh, very difficult problem to solve. Someone's asking a very important question about weight cutting. What would be the solution? I mean... I'm not opposed to hydration testing, but I said this to Rich Franklin's face, and I would say it again. I like Rich a lot. When I say to his face, I just mean I didn't say it on this about him. I said it to him through a screen, but I said it to him, which was, you know, one makes a lot of claims about how their system is much better than everyone else's. And anecdotally, you hear very good things, but if there is no commission to act on the public's behalf to say whether or not the promoter is doing what they're doing, you have no way of knowing if it's true. And then when you have eight guys miss, and then they... You never see them right way in again, and then they just show up on fight night and everything's hunky-dory. It's like, dude, what's really happening here? Like, you cannot... Promoters um, should be celebrated for their successes, especially when they've innovated in the space. Let's be clear about that. However, and this is a big however, they should not get to make any claim at face value and have it be accepted. They need to prove that what they're doing and what they're claiming about themselves is true. One has never proven anything about their system. That doesn't mean that what they're saying is not true. could very much be true. This is not me saying that they're lying to everybody. But what I am saying is until they have proven it and you can't tell the difference between them whether it's a, a factual statement or just an outright lie, there's no really no way to know other than their word, then you don't get to assign any truth value to it. It just be, it just is what it is. It's a it's a claim. So um, hydration testing has been very valuable, certainly in collegiate wrestling. It's worked quite well. Very different system, but it works quite well. Uh, I think the current system that they have is probably pretty good. They've, they're much better about monitoring, getting the weigh-ins early, I think is, it was some early hiccups, but has turned out to be, in general, pretty good. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not one of these guys that thinks like weight cutting is, like how do we ban strategic sweating I, I think at some point you really can't uh, you can just sort of corral you can corral the practice and, and in general they pretty much have I think that's it oh last one. Oh, two more sorry real quickly Islam says that Charles only beats strikers Chandler is a wrestler who hasn't subbed and Poirier has a sick gilly. <laughs> Habib's beaten two of the same guys. That's playing down his legacy unintentionally. Well, I think he's saying that's all he's done in his championship run. You know, Habib's beaten all those other kinds of guys previously, but fair point. Uh, and then Chandler versus Islam. How would that go? I would imagine Islam would be looking to slow everything down, take his back. Uh, threaten him from the back 
that kind of a thing. Like he, I mean, Eddie Alvarez was able to do it, right in Bellator. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't uh, Why wouldn't Islam be able to? All right, that is it for today. I want to thank everybody for watching. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. Um, you guys are the best. Thank you for all the donations. I will take a look and see if there are any of the uh, super thanks, and I'll try to address those. Uh, if not, no worries. Appreciate you guys so much, and until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>